All right. Well, we are in a, a series called Sanctity, and the four sermons that we're doing last week was the sanctity of life. Um, this morning, we're going to be talking about the sanctity of gender. Probably most of you have never heard a sermon on the sanctity of gender. Next week will be the sanctity of sexuality. Of all of the sermons, next week's will be PG-13. So um, I just want to give all of you parents a forewarning that there are some of your younger kids that you may not want to be in there. If you don't want them to ask, what is sex? You may not want them to be in the room at that time. So Next week will be the sanctity of marriage. These are all, are all pretty neutral issues, right? No big deal. I mean, these are just pretty, we all agree, everyone's on the same page, you'll never meet any controversy at all. Um, one of the things we have found is that um, Christians, and you know this, everybody knows all of the things we're against, right? I mean, we are picketers, right? We are the ones who stand up and we say, no, 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 no. And I want to be just frank with you, I'm against a lot of things, okay? Um, and I'm against things, though, for a reason. And one of the things that I found that Christians are not equipped to do is to tell people why they're against something. I want to give you an illustration of this. I am against smoking crack. Everybody awake now? Okay, good. All right. Yeah, Regan wants me to affirm for all of you, so is he. Okay. Uh, I, I'm against this. And somebody comes up to me and says, uh, hey, can I smoke crack? I'm going to say, no, you can't. I'm not in favor of this. I'm not okay with this decision you're making. They look at me and say, you're such a party pooper, but I want to. Who are you to tell me no? You're so judgmental. You're such a bigot. And at the end of the day, my issue is this. It's not even so much of what I'm against. It's what I am for. I am for you living according to God's word. I am for you not being enslaved to what I know this drug will do to you. I am for your life and your health and your happiness. So I'm not just against something because I like rules. I'm for something because God's word says how we're supposed to live and function. You understand what I'm saying? And so if someone's going to come up to you and say, why are you against, and you fill in the blank of what Christians historically do not support, why are you against gay marriage? Why are you against X, Y, and Z? I hope you're able to articulate what you're for. So this morning, we're going to talk about gender, and my desire in this is to give you a clear category of really what we're for. And so if you look in your notes, pull those out with me, because um, in order to follow along well, um, you're going to need to be kind of looking along with me. And uh, this is um, sort of a heady topic, so here's what I want to ask you to do. Are you awake? Yeah? Are you all in? Are you ready to go? It'll be three and a half hours max, and by 3.30, you'll be free to go. It's cool. We're going to be fine here. So last week, um, we talked about um, the sanctity of life and what it means to be made in the image of God. And we gave four categories. The first two is that we are body and soul. So we, are, we have a soul unlike the animal realm, who are just bodies. We have a body unlike the angelic realm, who are just souls. And there's something about humanity that is the convergence of the body and soul, and it makes us unique and distinct from all of creation. So that in this body-soul connection, that God God um, steps back and he says, physically, spiritually, emotionally, hormonally, biologically, sexually, all of the components that come together, you're made in my image and likeness. If I could make me human, here's what it would look like. And that expression um, is part of being made in the image of God. The third thing we saw is that to be made in the image of God is to be given a responsibility to graciously rule over all of creation. We are called to um, uh, rule over the animals and over the earth and subdue them and, then to and to bring them under control, to bring order out of the chaos. We are also, we saw also that um, when it's all said and done, we will even 
judge angels and rule over angels. And so we have the responsibility in behalf of God to rule. Fourth thing that we saw is unique in all of creation that we have an infinitely beautiful value made in the image of God. When Jesus went to the cross, he did not go to the cross for the sins of the lion and the antelope and the ant and the spider. When he went to the cross, he did not go to the cross with the sins of the fallen angels in mind. He went to the cross for, with the sins of humanity on his mind. We are valuable. We are uniquely valuable because we are God's kids. We are the image of God on earth. We are here to represent God, to look like God, to rule like God, and he places on us a beautiful, infinite value, unique in all of creation. Now, we're going to add a fifth category this week to what it means to be made in the image of God, and this is our sex, our maleness and our femaleness. And if you look at your notes, there's some terminology that I want to uncover with you. And we're going to look at terminology, first of all, and the way things should have been. And in terms of terminology, pay very close attention because you're going to want to make sure you know what I mean when I use certain words. And the first word I want you to pay close attention to is sex. And by sex, I mean our biological maleness or femaleness. I'm either biologically a man or a woman. And in the created world before the fall, there was no in-between. There was male, and then there was female. Now, in the 1950s, psychologists introduced a word into our vocabulary called gender. And gender is the expression of masculinity or femininity, of our maleness or our femaleness. And so some people might be biologically a female, but their gender expression might be on the masculine side of things. You might be biologically male, but your gender expression might go towards the feminine side of things. And so what we find is that um, sex is fixed. And in the Bible, I want you to catch this, um, in a created world, our behavior is supposed to follow our biology. Our behavior is supposed to follow our biology. And we're going to look at Scripture and see what this means. Now, if you go to gender roles, which is the second category in your notes, um, it says the Old Testament describes and the New Testament assigns. And so here's what happens. When you read the book of Genesis, it's a narrative. It's a story. And so what you see there is that what it means to be male or female they're described. But if you're reading this thousands of years after it was written, it can be easy for you in this culture to miss what's really being said. So the New Testament comes in, particularly the Apostle Paul, and he clarifies and assigns meaning for us in these Old Testament texts. And so we're going to look at this morning, what does it mean to be masculine? What does it mean to be feminine. How does the Bible address this? We'll see this described in the Old Testament and clarified and assigned in the New Testament. Sound good? So open up your Bibles. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. And there's a, a, a very simple Christian view on this which states in your notes that man and woman are equal in value and personhood and complementary in sex and gender, or our role. That we are equal in personhood, but complementary in sex and gender, or role. Sound good? Now, some of you, before we read this, you're going to ask me, why do I care about this? I'm a dude. I'm a chick. I'm totally comfortable. This is irrelevant for me. I'm going to give you one quick reason, then we're going to go into this. If you have a son or a daughter, 
Here's my question for you. How will you raise him to be masculine? What does that even mean? You might have a daughter. What does it mean for me to raise my daughter to be feminine, a woman, so that as God has assigned to her a biology so that I can develop in her behavior that is consistent with God's word and upholds the biology that God has made her for. What does that look like? So some of you are going to be mentoring somebody. You're going to be mentoring a, a woman or a man. And here's the question. What is a man anyways, biblically? I understand what it is bio, like biologically, but how do I disciple a man to be a man? What is fundamentally at the core masculine? How do I disciple or mentor a woman to be a woman, a feminine woman, uh, after God's own heart. What does that mean? Now, if you cannot simply, purposely, pointedly answer those questions, you're confused. And let me tell you, your children, um, we are growing up in a very confused world. And what I want to do this morning, I want to give you categories. I want to give you clarity into what the Bible says these things are and also what these things are not. So don't assume too much of what I'm going to say, right? Just let's play the cards out. We'll see where we go here. Genesis um, 1, 26, and here's what it says. Then God said, let us, 126, make man in our image, after our likeness. Go to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Question, who made two different sexes? Answer, God. Who is the expert on sex and gender? Answer, God. So, I want to know what he has to say about this. So there are two questions that Genesis 1, 26 and 27 should provoke in you if you're reading slowly and carefully. Number one, what is God's image? And this text tells us two things. You can write this in your notes. God's image is number one, trinity. Number two, God's image is number two, complementary. How many gods are there? Pop quiz. One God. How many persons are there in the Godhead? Three persons. Is the Father fully God? Answer, yes. Is the Son fully God? Answer, yes. Is the Holy Spirit fully God? Answer, yes. One God, three persons, all equally valuable, all equally God, 100%. This is fundamentally the Trinity. God is singular and yet plural in personhood. One God, three persons. But the Trinity is also complementary. And here's what that means. That the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit being equally God, being equally valuable, equally deity, have separate and distinct roles and responsibilities that are not interchangeable. Would or could the Father have ever become flesh and died on the cross for humanity? Never. He couldn't. Because the roles are not interchangeable. And so at the end of the day, here's what happens, is that God says, let us, plural, Trinity, make man in our plural image. And it says that God made them after his image and his likeness. The second question that should be provoked here is, um, what is man's image? And here's the point. Man and woman are made in God's image, both fully made in the image of God, equally persons, people, equally, infinitely valuable. That male and female, one is not better than the other. 
but they are different. And as I'm looking around in this room, we see some major differences. Uh, they are fundamentally different because they are complementary. I want you to catch all of these words. Just listen carefully. In biology, psychology, sexuality, roles, and this is where we're going to dig in in the expression of our roles, our gender. Men are different. They are complementary with women, um, and we are complementary in every way you could almost possibly imagine. But just because we're different is one less human, less important, or less valuable. Your answer say no with me. No. Equally valuable, equally uh, made in the image of God. So we're going to look at men for a moment. So um, guys, are you ready? I want you to listen up. Uh, dudes, how many of you would love someone to come up to you and say, you're just so sweet and nice. You're so domesticated. Like, how many guys say, oh, I'm feeling like a man. Like, this is like, oh, you know, like most of you are probably not going to resonate with that, you know. Like ladies, you're all like, oh, I love a sweet and tender and gentle guy. And those are good qualities. Don't get me wrong. Ladies, should guys be those things? Answer, yes. Uh, it's interesting, though, if you were to ask me, what do I want my wife to say about me? I wrote some words down. I want her to say, she's not here right now, so. <laughs> he is muscular <laughs> and hairy. Just kidding. What is the biological reason for body? All right, anyways. I want her to say he is strong. He is loyal. He is capable. He is respectable. Like these are words I'm like, oh, that's what I'm saying. He is strong. And most guys in this room, not all, but most are like, yeah, like I would love a woman to look at me and say, you're strong. You are capable. You are manly, right? Now, guys, let's be honest. How many of you want to be called domesticated, right? Anybody? There's something, there's a reason we like Braveheart, like statistically more than women. There's some women who love Braveheart, and I'm glad you do, but there's something about that that just gets us at the core. And so here's what I want to do. I'm going to define the role for you, okay? Uh, and some of you are going to just read into this things I'm not saying, and that's your problem. I'm going to hopefully, we're going to, we're going to control some of that, but um, here's what I am saying. That men, dudes, okay, and culture just agrees with this, which I love, that men thrive in their masculinity, okay? Thrive when given responsibility to be sacrificial leaders, providers, and protectors over something of great value. If I were to look at most women in this room and say, ladies, do you want your husband to thrive in his masculinity? Do you want his behavior to follow his biology so that in the way God made them, he is functioning the way he's supposed to function? Then here's the deal. Men are created by our biology, our psychology, our sexuality, our physique, everything, that we thrive in our masculinity when we are sacrificial leaders, providers, and protectors. Now, I love this, that even in a fallen world, even in a world where these roles are so confused and disregarded, it is still the impulse of a man to move in this direction. That the majority of men understand this and they hear these words and they say in, in nonverbal unison, ugh, right? Like we hear this and there's just something inside of us. And so I want to biblically help you understand this. And as we do this, remember this. The Old Testament describes the New Testament assigned. So I'll read you something in the Old Testament, and you'll say, Michael, how are you getting that from that? And then I'll open up the New Testament, and I'll show you how it brings clarity. So the first is that men are leaders. I want to give you just two simple reasons that men are leaders. Uh, and the first one, as you read the Genesis account, will go right over your head culturally. You'll just miss this. And it's simply this. Adam was born first. 
Now, you should at this point be saying, Michael, that does not make any sense whatsoever. Could we all agree, though, that Adam was born first? Could we say yes? All right, good. Now, there's this little principle in the Bible that God injected into it, into Jewish culture, and even into Christian culture, and it's this principle of the firstborn. And the firstborn in, Christian, or in Jewish culture is said to carry the authority of the father in his absence. He is the leader of all of the siblings. And so here's what happens is that God is describing in the book of Genesis, and he does this by making him the firstborn, and the Jewish readers are going to understand something. Now, you'll say to me, Michael, how can you even prove that? Well, I'll prove that to you. In the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, Paul says some remarks that many women have taken um, very personally. He doesn't really have a lot of social tact, or I would say the translators don't have a lot of social tact, but I want you to hear what he says. He says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Okay? So his whole point is, Who's the leader? Man. Okay, that's his point. And then he says, why? Here's his reason. For Adam was formed first. That's his reason. Now, 21st century Americans, we step back and we say, that's ridiculous. I I don't even understand how you can go from there to there. But in God's economy, he was communicating something to all of the Jewish readers who would read this, that because he's the firstborn, he has the primacy of responsibility to lead. Now, that's doubly affirmed another, throughout really the whole story. It's affirmed in the curse, but it's affirmed through something really, I think, profound. It's uh, uh, confirmed through the fact that Adam was given the responsibility to name all of the animals the responsibility to name Eve's, Eve's sex, and the responsibility to name Eve personally. Now, if you have a child, who has the leadership or authority to name your child? The parents, right? Can we get a big amen? Can you say the parents, right? Good, parents. Because if you have the authority to name, what do you have? Authority leadership. And God is just communicating this. And then what we see is that all throughout scripture is that when it comes to God's people, that God is pushing men into these primary places of leadership. It's just part of the rhythm and the ebb and the flow of all scripture is that when it comes to a male's fundamental masculinity, that men are created to thrive when we lead. Now, some of you are thinking, I'm saying, can women lead? No. Can women lead? Yes. Do women thrive in their femininity in the same way that men thrive in their masculinity when they lead? By and large, biologically, no. And that's number one. Number two, men are providers. Uh, Genesis 2, 15 says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden, and what did he do? He says, work this and keep this. Now, obviously, we're not going to build too much of a theology of work based on a description that happens here. But here's what we learn through the rest of Scripture. Here's what we learn just through common experience is that man, men, maleness, masculinity, we are created to be hard workers. We are created to work and to provide. It is part of our DNA. Some of you are saying, Michael, prove this from Scripture. I would love to. The book of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. Here's what it says. Talking to um, dudes. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Just let that sink in. That there is something so central to Paul's understanding of masculinity that he says, look, like if you're gonna buck this responsibility, 
I'm telling you, this is just audacious. It's over the top. Men are created. It is our impulse to thrive in our masculinity when we are leading and when we're providing. It is fundamental to being a man. Can women provide? Everybody say yes. Yes. It's not the issue. The issue is very simply, where do men thrive in their masculinity? Okay, we're going to keep going. Uh, men are also told not to be just physical providers, but spiritual and emotional providers. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about the context of marriage. And in five verses, chapter 5, verses 25 to 29, um, the male, the husband, is said to be a spiritual provider. Here's what he's said to do for his wife. Sanctify her and cleanse her with the word. And so there's a spiritual component to this. Now, there's also an emotional component. You know what he tells the guys to do to their wives? He says, nourish her and cherish her. Can I get an amen from all the ladies? Right? How many of you were like, no, don't nourish me and cherish me. I don't want to be cherished. Right? <laughs> like, guys are made to come alive when we, in the context of marriage, um, spiritually and emotionally provide for a woman. We are made just as dudes to work hard and, and take responsibility of provision for something of great value outside of ourselves. Men are protectors. The name Adam, um, which means man, also means strong. Love this. The word is ish. Ish. You got to say it with a grunt, though. Ish, right? That's man. What, your name? Ish. Like, that's kind of how I imagine it. Um, men are warriors throughout Scripture. We are physically wired, generally speaking, to be larger than women because we are made to do something different. Would you agree that God made us on purpose? Yeah. Would you agree that God assigned male and female? Yes. Would you agree that God made them physically, hormonally, emotionally, sexually, fundamentally, biologically different on accident? No, he did it on purpose because in the very physical created order, God is communicating. Now, uh, you may be wondering, Michael, um, you need to prove this. I'll say, fine, I'll prove this to you. First uh, Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. So listen, here's, here's what it says. Talking to the dudes. Be watchful. Is this a protective posture, right? You're watching. Something is threatening something you love. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Don't be weak. Be strong. Be ish, right? You stand firm in the faith. You watch out. You're protecting something here. And here's what it says. Act like men. Be strong. Quote. Like, act like men. So what does it mean to be a man? It means fundamentally to be a protector. That's what it means. And a man thrives in his masculinity when he is sacrificially leading, providing, and protecting something of great value. I love this. He says, i just read it for you again. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Now, ladies, in case you have been on the other side of a dude who plays this out all wrong, listen to the next verse because this is where it gets really awesome for you. Let all that you do be done in love. And every woman said, amen. Amen. You want a man who's able to handle the tensions of strength and protection and leadership, and he does all things in love in a spirit of humility for the benefit of somebody else. I mean, this comes back to a fundamental question. I've got a little two-year-old, okay? What does it mean for me to raise him as a man? 
It means that from a young age, I'm going to start giving him responsibility over something of great value. I'm going to look at him. I'm going to teach him how to lead it. I'm going to teach him how to provide for it. I'm going to teach him how to protect it. That from a young age, I'm going to instill manhood in my kids by doing this. Now, they're going to express this masculinity probably in a number of different cultural ways, right? But at the core, what does it mean to be a man? It means you will thrive in your masculinity when you are a sacrificial leader, provider, protector. Do women protect? Every mama bear in the room said, yes. We are not talking about yay men, boo women. This is not the discussion I'm having right now. I'm saying to you, that if you want to emasculate the man and your wife, put him into a corner, control him, disrespect him, don't treat him as strong, you will emasculate him. If you want to see a man thrive in his masculinity, give him opportunities to lead, provide, and protect, and he will come alive because it's the impulse of his soul. Let's go to women. What does it mean to be a woman? Women thrive in their femininity. Hard word to say. When given the responsibility to be strong and equal helpers and sacrificial nurturers towards someone of great value. Ladies, should men help? Yes. Should men nurture? Yes. Are we talking, are we saying, am I saying that men don't do this? No. Here's what I'm saying that biologically, sexually, emotionally, hormonally, physically, you are wired different. God did this different, and you come alive in a different context, in a different environment. And I want to just work through some scripture on this with you. And, and so women as strong and equal helpers. Proverbs 31 um, describes this woman who is amazing. She's an entrepreneur. She is a leader. She is creative. She is kind of the best of all worlds. She kind of makes every woman in the room feel totally guilty all the time. But there's this one little verse that sticks out to me that I love, that any definition of womanhood in this culture that does not understand this misses it. And here's the verse. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the future. Any definition of femininity that is not strong, dignified, and at peace is not biblical femininity. It's not. And so I want to preface that. That's why it's not as easy just to say we're going to pick out the word helper and throw it at you. We're going to define what that means. But any definition, you have to put the adjective strong and dignified. Because let me tell you, women are not weak, right? You guys are a force to be reckoned with. And I love that you are strong, you are dignified, you are valuable. But here's the question. Can you lead? Sure. But where do you come alive? And let's watch this play itself out. Uh, Genesis 2, 18. God sees that the man is alone, and he says, it is not good that the man should be alone. And all the guys said, amen. It's very hard. <laughs> I will make a helper fit for him. So I want to give you three things that are going to help you actually define this well. Here's the first. God the Father identifies himself as our helper. Is he somehow less than a man? Anybody? No. Is his identity threatened? No. Number two, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is called the helper. So that fundamental to God's nature and character is that he is a helper. And as God made male and he made female, he stepped back and he said, look, um, female, right? 
you are uniquely going to represent this aspect of me. Not that you'll be the only helper, but that when you do this, you will come alive in your femininity. There's something central about your being that when you go down this route, you come alive. Now, here's the third one. So many men and many patriarchal home systems that are oppressive or abusive define this as woman do the dishes or make me a meal or some like other derogatory, dehumanizing, devaluing, degrading approach. And here's, I want to give you some, I think, life in this. And here's what I want to tell you. What was the woman asked to help the man with? The mission that God had given him. The mission. So God looks at Adam and says, subdue the earth. Can he do that without her help? No. Fill the earth. Can he do that without her help? No. He can't do anything that God has asked him to do without her. And so when you enter into any kind of helping position or posture, here's fundamentally what it is. I am not here to fulfill your selfish ends and desires to accommodate your laziness. I am here. I exist as a strong and dignified helper to help you on the mission that Jesus has given this family and this church. I exist to help with the mission. Do you get that? Like, that's huge. I exist to help with the mission. I am not weak. I am not passive. I'm not somebody you can oppress. I'm not somebody you can abuse. I am an equal and valuable helper who God has given to you to help accomplish the mission that he has given us. Okay? That is huge. The problem is when we hear the word helper, we say, oh, he's so patriarchal. Oh, it's so chauvinistic. That's because you're reading all of the 21st century or the last three or 4,000 years of abuse into that term. And I would just say, look at what it says. She exists to help him fulfill the mission that God has given them. Now, here's the second aspect. Women are sacrificial nurturers. So the man names her, and he calls her woman. I love this. Uh, Man is ish. Favorite Hebrew word in, in, in all the Hebrew language is woman. Isha. That's so, like, sexy. It's like, Isha. You know? It's awesome. And you know what it means? Soft. He looks at her, and he just says, you're different than me. I'm hairy and rough and strong, right? You're soft. Like, there's something so different about the way she's made. And his first word, like, she shall be called soft. Like, I'm strong, She's soft. And I love that. And then he gives her a personal name. And he says, your name is Eve because you're the mother of all the living. That's central to this helping is that she comes alive as a woman in her ability to nurture and in this context to become a mother. Now there's uh, the reality is that some women are not called to be married. Some women are called to be married and struggle with barrenness and fertility their whole lives and it is gut-wrenching. Let me tell you why it's gut-wrenching for a woman uniquely more so than it is for a man. Because you are wired, there's an impulse in you to be a sacrificial nurture that is more powerful than any man can understand, which is why when we enter into the world of, of infertility, it is one of the deepest, darkest, most emotional seasons for so many women because it is going against the impulse of who they are as a woman. Now, uh, do men nurture? Should they nurture? There's a better question. Yes. But we don't come alive in our masculinity in the same way that a woman comes alive in her femininity when she is sacrificially nurturing and caring for someone else. Now, okay, Michael, where is this in the New Testament? I'm so glad you asked. I would love to share that with you. Again, Paul is going to share with us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. He's going to make a pretty 
um, controversial statement if you don't understand him. And here's the statement. The woman will be saved through childbearing. Now, this is where you throw rocks at me. Anybody? Somebody actually might. You've been saving this. Um, are you ever saved by your works? Answer? No. Paul's made that clear. Okay? The word saved, truthfully, means different things in different contexts in Scripture. You've got to understand that. It is actually one of the most pliable words in the New Testament. You have to read context until you understand what it means. And I'll just very simply tell you what this means. That there is something about what happens in a woman when she becomes a mother that it automatically fights against her sinful quality. She comes alive as she gives herself over to sacrificially nurture for someone of great value. That there is this sense in which she becomes more like who Christ has made her to be in this context. And the rub is, well, what if I'm barren or I'm not married? And here's what we'd say is we'd say, God has made you to be a spiritual mother and a physical mother. And so you give your life away and you mentor younger women and you raise them up and you nurture them and you care for them. And that is part of why you are fundamentally different. And that's good. It is your impulse. And at the end of the day, here's what Paul says. There's something so unique about women that it helps them just come alive when they're able to be moms. All right. Number three, gender formation. This is a, a kind of a hot topic uh, in our culture. How does gender get developed? And I want to talk about it initially from a Christian perspective, and then we'll look at how the world is understanding this in a little bit. <clears throat> Number one, gender is decreed by God through sex so that before the foundation of the world, he knew you existed, and did God determine whether or not you would be a male or a female? Answer, yeah. So God decided you'd be a male, you'd be a female. Um, and then here's what happens. That decision or decree by God is confirmed through your biology when you were conceived and born. Okay, we look at this and we say, oh, clearly God made him to be a male. He decreed that because that is what he is. Now here's what we find, that male and female are different. We agree on this. They're complementary. The way our hormones work, the way our sexuality works, the way we process information. Um, I'll be honest, the majority of dudes, we cannot multitask. Our brains are made differently. And every wife said, amen. I'm, didn't you hear me talking to you? No, I'm watching TV. I can't do two things at once. It's like barely possible, you know. And, and there's actually biological reasons why men don't multitask. Like we're made differently. And so our, our biology is given to us by God, our development, our hormones, our physique, everything else. And all of it is wired inside of us because God doesn't do anything on accident. He's always working on purpose. And then here's what happens in the ideal world. We grow up and we feel the impulse. It's experienced by nature. Um, my little boy, he's almost two and he takes this sword. He goes up to my daughter and he's like, die, 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 die. It's really funny. My wife has been trying to teach him, got you, got you, like new words here, you know? And she's like, oh, and she's protecting her little dolls. Oh, don't hurt the little babies, you know? And like, die, die. It's just really kind of funny how all that works. Um, but one author wrote this. He said, our gender is written on our soul so that even from the time that little boys and little girls come out, what's supposed to happen is that our very soul is wired to live out our biology different, differently because behavior is supposed to follow biology. We grew up in a home. We see that this is developed by mom and by dad, that we uh, help them understand how is this masculinity and this femininity expressed. We take our little boys and we give them leadership and we give them 
responsibility over things that are valuable. And we say, take this, own this, develop this, be responsible for this. And we, we go to our little girls and we raise them and we say, um, uh, sacrificially nurture and take care and help and be a part of God's mission. And, and we do this because as we do this, we're developing in them this masculinity and this femininity. What is natural for them is what is decreed by God. It's confirmed by biology. And then we instill this and train them how to do it as moms and dads. And then finally, it gets expressed in the world in light of scripture and in light of culture. And so let me give you an analogy for this. Um, I'm a pastor, and I shared with you earlier the four roles of pastor. We have um, leader, protector, shepherd, teacher. And basically, if you were to put me in a time machine and go back uh, into the 18th century, here's what you're going to find. Pastors dressed differently, acted differently, looked differently, preached differently, studied differently, but they still maintained the role. They still functioned in those four categories. But because of the changing culture, it shifted. They expressed it so differently. And this is sort of like what it means to be masculine and feminine. All over the world, cultures express this uniquely and differently. Um, but here's the deal. The role doesn't change. The expression of gender can be very fluid as long as it does not contradict other scripture. And so here's what happens. At the end of the day, my boy will be raised up and he'll turn into a man, God willing, and he will be masculine in his expression. And he'll look around and he will um, reflect that in a 21st century context. And we'll look at that and we'll say, yeah, you're, you're, you're allowed to wear t-shirts, even though 300 years ago they would never have worn t-shirts to church. And still, you can still be masculine and dress a certain way or feminine and dress a certain way. And here's what we see. Some of you want rules. You want eight steps to be a woman. I, I'm not going to give you that. Uh, you, what does it look like now? How short or long can my hair be or this or that? I'm not going to give that to you. What I want to challenge you on fundamentally is masculinity is sacrificially leading, providing, and protecting. Femininity is fundamentally, it is strong and dignified and equal helper and sacrificial nurturing. Um, and again, you'll find that as we express those things, that my wife would prefer to me to be a little more nurturing, right? Trying to do that. Uh, and so like there's where we, we uh, understand how this is expressed differently. The fall. How has sin broken me? Terribly. If you are here, you have a gender dysfunction. I want you to understand this. Some of us are way more dysfunctional than others. Every one of us are born into this world and because we do not understand what it means to be masculine or feminine and to have our behavior follow our biology, um, we end up going all over the place. Not only that, but we're confused. We're culturally confused. We're confused what the Bible says. We're confused by what our parents, everything's just confusing. The way men act out their roles in the home as husbands and dad, the way wives act out their roles in the home as mothers and wives, it's very dysfunctional. So terminology, we need to make sure you understand some of the words that are emerging on the 21st century um, landscape. First is that <clears throat> sex, which was historically biologically male and female, is now not fixed, but malleable. We need to catch that. Which is, let me just be honest, as if you don't know what I'm really thinking, but um, even if you change the outward, what does the DNA still tell you? I mean, you can change the outward, but culture isn't looking at it like that. They're only looking at what's on the outward. 
And so here's some of the emerging trends that are happening. Um, gender is not fixed, but malleable. Um, male, female, there's a third um, gender on the horizon called intersex. And so if you go to Australia, Nepal, Germany, um, they have a third categoriz categorization of gender in this intersex category. So hear me, this is our issue. This isn't something you can just say, I'm not interested in dealing with this. Okay? Because there are going to be people who are going to want to say, I'm made in the image of God and I am intersex. Can you say that? Um, <clears throat> and so uh, gender now has, is evolving, the understanding of it. It's not just behavior follows biology. It's different. Gender is the amoral, meaning there's no right, there's no wrong. Expression of our sex as masculine, feminine, androgynous, trans, the options are endless. Endless. So your boys and your girls, they're growing up in a world where gender is an option that they get to choose. That to be masculine has nothing to do with leadership, provision, and protection, despite what's written on our souls. To be feminine has nothing to do with helping and nurturing and being strong and dignified, despite what's written on their souls. It is optional, it's malleable, it's a choice, it's fluid, it's elastic, it's stretchy, nothing is stable. And they grow up in a world that says, who do you want to be? Become what you want. Become what you desire, which for a Christian should be the scariest words on the planet because we understand fundamentally my wanter, my desires, it's broken. It's broken. A uh, couple words <clears throat> for you. Transsexual. One feels they belong to the other sex or acts like the opposite sex. Transitioning. One is changing their body to match their psychology. So you will meet people. I've met a number of people who are transitioning, and they're in the middle of sex change therapy, hormone therapy, and because they're at odds in their own heads and in their own hearts, they're changing their physical with the hope that it will match their psychological. There's a new condition called gender dysphoria, and this very simply is when your brain is at odds with your body with regard to gender. When your body says, clearly you're a male, but your brain says, but I'm, I'm a female on the inside, and it's gender dysphoria, and it's kind of a neutral, neutral term so that people who are experiencing this, um, uh, it's not called sin, it's just something you're working through. And here's the reality. Um, there are people in this room who are struggling intensely with this issue. Most of you aren't, statistically, that's just the rule. But there are people in this room, and, and here's what I want you to understand. When I say be sensitive, here's, here's why. You will never understand the majority of you in this room what it looks like to be confused on such a base level of who you are, to be at odds in your head and your body, to be told all of these things, should I get a sex change? Should I get hormone therapy? Should I dress like a woman? All of these things are options, and there are a few things more challenging than for someone to actually experience this in this world, in this culture. And so before you walk away and say, oh, this is dumb, oh, this never happens, or that's so, this or that, you need to understand that even in this church, this is an issue and a strong battle inside for some people. And they are trying to figure out what does it mean for me to submit my maleness or my femaleness to Jesus Christ and then my masculine and feminine expression of that to Jesus Christ, given what's going on in my body. The cultural view, this emerging cultural view says this, that man and woman or intersex are equal in value and fluid in sex identity and gender expression. Fluid. 
in sex identity and gender expression. To say you are a male will become a bigoted statement or hate speech in the near future. I want you to catch the wave that is riding. You are tempted between two things, the majority of you in this room, and that is, I want to be cultural. I want to be sensitive. I want to be open. I want to be affirming. I want to be all these things, right? But there is something so fundamental about what you and I know to be true, and culture is just going the exact opposite direction, and you are going to be torn on a core level. How do I affirm a third sex gender? How do I affirm this? Uh, how do I navigate these issues? And your conscience, your heart, and your brain, your impulses inside of you towards biblical masculinity and femininity versus what everybody else says, you are going to be conflicted on some of the deepest levels. As we look at the fall of man, it starts in Genesis 3, and what we see in the fall is that man, male, his masculinity is cursed. His ability to lead, provide, and protect are cursed. The ground will be difficult uh, for him to provide. Um, there will be now sin and death, and his protection will become more difficult. The woman now in her curse is cursed to, to be controlling over him, and now his leadership will be cursed. And here's what happens, is that there are some pendulum swings in the curse. That men go from aggressive or oppressive, and they swing all the way to weak or apathetic. And that there is this pendulum swing because of the fall that most men have to navigate. Like, I feel, I want to be aggressive, I'm angry, I feel all these things. Or they're just apathetic, I don't care, whatever you want, whatever you want. And then there's just this um, oppression, like, no, I, you will submit to me, I will rule you. This um, overarching, overcompensating macho-ness that is not biblical, and it pendulum swings all the other way to weakness. Whatever you say, whatever you say, whatever you say, whatever you say, right? And in the middle of these abusive, sinful pendulum swings in men is a man who sacrificially takes responsibility for something outside of himself and he leads it and he protects it and he provides for it. In the, in the feminine um, fall, Eve is cursed and all women everywhere are cursed and her ability to be a helper and to be a mother are cursed. She's actually, both of them are cursed at the very core, the very DNA of who they are in their masculinity and femininity. And it says this, to the woman, he said, God said, I will multiply, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Sorry, ladies. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and literally this is to control or consume him, but, your, but he shall rule over you. None of this is good. The man's leadership is broken, and her ability to honor and help him is broken. The pendulum swings for unbiblical femininity from the fall go from um, controlling and disrespectful to capitulating and weak. Is a woman weak? No. Does she give in to whatever a man wants? Oh, uh, guys want me to be sexy, so I'm going to dress scandalous so that they like me. Is that what a woman does, a biblical woman? No. Do biblical women um, disrespect and control and, and, and basically um, emasculate men and their controllingness? No. The biblical woman has to land somewhere in between the pendulum swings. And this is why I say every one of us are broken on a fundamental gender level because to learn the medium, the middle, the appropriate expression of this is hard. The fall has really, really affected us. You can see a modern gender reformation 
Gender is now suggested by God or nature through biology or sex. Constrained by biology. It's very hard to get out of it. Technology is on the cutting edge of allowing people to, at least on the surface, biologically remove themselves from being perceived as masculine and feminine. But here's the deal. It's experienced by our sinful nature. That as kids grow up, the impulse to be masculine or feminine is still there, but it's broken. And then what happens is this broken impulse grows up in a sinful world, in a sinful culture, and it's developed by moms and dads and parents and community who say, it doesn't matter what you are, you take your time. Don't let them tell you you're a boy. Don't let them tell you you're a girl. You figure it out. You want to wear a dress to school today? That's fine. That's against the dress codes? I'll sue them, right? You don't let anybody tell you what's good and what's bad and what's wrong. You decide what you want. Your desire trumps your biology or God's intention. That is the future of what you and I have to navigate. Express your desires in your culture, in your community. There are no wrongs. There are no rights. There is no feminine. There is no masculine except to help us understand different aspects of gender. They are amoral and neutral. This is a gospel issue for two reasons. Because gender confusion equals gospel confusion. I want to read you a quote. This woman, Mary Cassian had this great, great, great um, lecture on gender from a Christian perspective, and she wrote this. God created us male and female with passions and desires for one another. Why? To write on our very souls the greatest love story ever, which is God's love for his bride, the church. So that what God was doing on purpose, he steps back and he says, biology, okay, behavior. Because in your behavior, which flows from your biology, I am showing forth the full image of God as male and female. And in this context, we'll we'll discover next week, of sexuality and marriage, when they come together, the full image of God, the the picture of Jesus' love for his bride, the church, is on most clear and full display as male, male and female express themselves in their gender and their sexuality in the context of marriage. It's a beautiful picture. So that once we get away from clarity on these issues, the gospel that God has wired into the very fabric of nature is being disintegrated and dissolved. The second reason <clears throat> is that gender confusion is victory for Satan. Why does Satan want to us to confuse our gender? Because as we live out maleness and femaleness, masculinity and femininity according to our biology, we show forth God's image. And who does he hate? God. He wants to disgrace God. He wants people to be confused about God. And one of the most essential ways to confuse someone about God is to get them confused about who God says they truly are. In the end, Satan loses. Thank God. There are a number of questions on here. Um, These are mostly for you to go home and duke it out. He's going to have a blast with these. I'm confident, right? Some of you aren't Christians. I'm so glad you're here. At the very least, before you go home and say, ah, he's such an idiot, um, at the very least, just take this posture. I feel like I understand why Christians at least say what they do. And then you can go and you can talk about some of these issues. I'll give you a couple answers right now. We're not going to go through all of them, but here's one. Um, Number three on here. What about someone who's undergone a sex change and then becomes a Christian? What does repentance realistically look like? So here's the deal. Anywhere where I have denied um, my identity in terms of who God has declared me to be or assigned me to be, 
Um, wherever I'm at on this, whether, I'm, whether or not I'm the oppressive or aggressive man, whether I'm, not, whether I'm the man who thinks he's in a woman's body or changes my biology, I don't care where you are in the spectrum. Here's what happens when you come to Christ and repent. Any place where I have left masculinity, I move back toward. And I begin to rethink my options of how do I now learn to express myself as who God has made me to be. Now, those are going to be on a situation-by-situation basis, but there's a principle, which is when you come to Christ, we now look and say, what is biblical masculinity? What is biblical femininity? It starts with my gender. It flows out of my behavior. And I start there, and I rethink everything from there, from that place out. What do you do, number four, when a boy dresses a girl comes to youth group? When a college student in the middle of a sex change process comes to church? Or kids in our children's ministry refuse to identify as boy or girl because they have not decided yet. Hear me, it's going to happen. What do you do in those moments? Here's a question. How do you treat somebody out of their truest identity despite what they believe about themselves? That's hard. Um, oh, we, could just, we could literally spend years and days and we won't, but number seven. If I come to Jesus and submit my gender confusion before him, will I change? And here's the simple answer. I don't know. I know that in a fallen world, uh, in a broken world, some things don't get fully fixed until we get new bodies. Um, Somebody who has same-sex attraction says, if I come to Jesus, will he change my sexual attraction? Sometimes, sometimes not. But here's, here's the principle. The principle is this. I don't live based on my feelings. I don't make decisions based on who I want to be. I, I let God declare for me who I am, and I live out of that. But if you're going to become a Christian, like those are some of the things you need to be very realistic about. There are some people who commit their lives to singleness because they have not had the freedom yet from these struggles. But more than they love their sexuality, more than they love even their gender, they love their God. And they say, you know what? I'm broken. I will not submit to this because I believe you what you say. Much like the alcoholic who everything in them, they might be genetically prone to it, says, you know what? Everything in me wants it. But I'm going to follow what my God says for me because I believe that he is infinitely smarter than I am. Are these easy? No, can I fix anything in a five-minute like Q&A? No, not at all. But the point is to give you some principles. We're going to close with, with uh, number three, redemption. How does Jesus heal my brokenness? Well, the first thing I would say is men act like men. And by that, I don't mean macho, oppressive, aggressive, weak, or apathetic. I mean take loving responsibility for something of great value beyond yourself. Lead for that, provide for that, and protect that. Ladies, act like women. I'm not talking about being capitulating or controlling or disrespectful or whatever words that go with this. I'm saying uh, be a strong, dignified helper and be a sacrificial nurturer. And your femininity will come alive as you pursue those. Redemption for those struggling with gender identity. I would just say first and foremost, believe in Jesus. He is a good, gracious, and merciful God who is so patient with all of our struggles, 
who takes us on long-term journeys and holds our hands through these things and is so gracious with us. Share your struggle. Okay, so there are kids who've grown up in the village church who have deep struggles with this and felt no safety to discuss this until their 20s and 30s. So here's mom and dad. You may not have any categories. Uh, somehow, I want to look at kids or young adults or people who are maybe older and have never gotten this out and say, let's talk about this. There is no condemnation. The goal is not to come down on you or to force sex change therapy or whatever. You know, all these things that, these paranoias they have. Let's just talk and pray and submit this before Jesus. Let's work on this. Let's talk about it. Let's, but that starts with getting it out of the darkness. And I, myself or my wife would love to meet with you. And say, as you come to Christ, you have to make a decision. Will I submit my gender to the lordship of Jesus Christ? This goes for the gender confused. It also goes for the men and women who are not fulfilling their roles of masculinity and femininity in a way that brings Jesus glory. The process for all sin recovery is long. Can I get an amen on that? It doesn't matter what your issue is. It is not easy. Will you trust Jesus in the process? I would just encourage you to trust him in the process. There are high highs and low lows and victories and losses, but he's gracious and patient. And my desire is that there are some of you who have gone through this, is that you would share your struggle, that your struggle would no longer identify you, but that you would be able to say, I am who Jesus says I am. And I want to come alongside of and care for people who have had these same issues. And I think that's one of the ultimate goals is every piece of brokenness we have, God intends to enter into that, heal that, and then to release us to serve other people who are broken also. And that's one of my desires is to see us get to a point, whatever our brokenness is, that we're able to now come alongside others as we're in process and to help them at the beginning of that process. So Ville Church, heated issue? Easy issue? No. Um, I, I want to welcome you to disagree with me. Um, I want to welcome you to arm wrestle with me too. Um, I want to welcome you to ask questions and say, hey, I want to know what you meant by this. Uh, I really would love to open up discussion and give you some biblical boundaries and categories. And so feel free. I really am excited about that. I want to pray and ask the band to come up and then we're going to close. Lord, I fully understand that this is not easy. I fully understand that um, there are men and women in this room um, who just honestly think, what the Bible has to say or my understanding is um, ridiculous. God, I know that I speak in behalf of every believer in Jesus. We want to know what your word says. We want to submit every part of our life to you. But we also know that we're broken. And so Lord, would you help us to think biblically, to feel biblically, to live biblically, to begin that trajectory. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room that truly is genuinely um, struggling with some of these issues. God, I pray that there would be profound and beautiful safety that they experience in this community, um, that private discussions would start so that no longer is it in the dark, but it can come to the light, and that they can see that there is true love and grace and peace and hope and community in Jesus Christ, despite how much we struggle or how socially unacceptable some of those struggles may be. God, I pray at the end for the men and women of this community. May we be and raise up young men with clarity of who God is, may you, who you have made them to be. May we raise up young women in this church with clarity on who you've made them to be. May we not confuse roles. 
May we live with cultural sensitivity. May we not oppress or say no to things that the Bible doesn't say no to. God, I pray that the men would even grow to be nurturers and helpers and that our women could learn and grow in the areas of leadership and helping and provision and protection. But Lord, I pray that we would dig deep into who you've made us to be. God, would you help us? We pray this and we ask this in the great, powerful name of Jesus. Amen.